Hello again, everybody. This is Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead, and we are looking forward to another very interesting, very informative, if not maybe a little somber, episode of Get the Let Out. This is going to be another part of our Toxic Legacy series. And in this one, we're going to talk about those who were supposed to be the watchmen, those who were supposed to keep us safe, failing to do their job. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Chuck Stead. Thank you, Joe. So on Monday, October 3rd of 2005, the record continued the Toxic Legacy series with a front page headline that read, The Watchdogs Failed. This piece was primarily the work of Jan Barry, and it reviewed the dynamic of the working relationship between Ford and the EPA. Early in the narrative, Jeff Tittle, director of the Sierra Club in New Jersey, speaks of the letter that he sent to Bradley Campbell of the New Jersey DEP. Tittle told of his many tours with officials from EPA starting in 1979. He requested that the DEP take legal action against both Ford and the EPA. Campbell, a lawyer and former EPA administrator, contacted the U.S. Attorney for New Jersey, who at that time was Chris Christie. He wrote to Christie, saying, quote, These sludges present a potential risk to both local residents and the environment. Moreover, the presence of this contamination appears in direct conflict with representations that Ford and its consultants made concerning remedial activity. A Ford spokesman, John Holt, is quoted as saying that the company continues to cooperate with the state and federal regulators, as well as continues to communicate with the community. But the record reported that the public records show federal officials at EPA repeatedly let Ford walk away from tens of thousands of tons of waste at Ringwood. The very fact that at the time of the publication, Ford and the EPA were back again for a fifth attempt at a cleanup speaks volumes. The record investigation showed that even before the first attempt at a cleanup, state inspectors doubted Ford's report of the extent of the contamination as early as 1985. By 1987, the DEP complained that the EPA hadn't given the state enough time to review Ford's remediation plans. Thus, the EPA allowed Ford to proceed with an inadequate cleanup. By August of 1988, EPA Section Chief Raymond Basso reported to the community that Ford's excavation of the sludge was now complete. Jan Barry reported that Basso, through an agency spokesman, said that he had relied entirely on Ford's records of what was dumped in Ringwood and then what was removed. The Ramapo residents recalled that Basso told them Ford had searched extensively over four years for any more paint sludge. Ford then closed the books on the cleanup. It's interesting to note that at the time of this writing, which is in 2014, paint sludge could still be found by anyone other than an EPA investigator in the woodlands of Ringwood. It could be found along the roads, along the trails, near to Pinebrook, which is a tributary to the Wanakew Reservoir, and of course, it can always be found packed deep into the old iron mines. Needless to say, 
the federal agency was called back in for another four times, and still investigations point to tens of thousands of tons of contamination remaining at that site to this day. The second part in the Toxic Legacy series contains graphic photographs of regulatory inspectors and local activists wandering about the site, picking up chunks of sludge and studying them, along with two interesting sidebar stories. The first one examines the gift of polluted land Ford made to the state of New Jersey, apparently in an attempt to avoid tougher dumping laws which were adopted back in 1970. The transfer of 109 acres, previously owned by Ford when it was dumping sludge, sludge there from 1967 to 1971, ultimately did not let Ford out of responsibility once the Superfund law was enacted in 1980. But the sidebar story discussed the mystery of the land gift, as reported by Clint Riley and Jan Barry, that while the deed, dated December 21, 1973, says Ford gave the state 109 acres and bears the signature of Governor Brendan Byrne and his environmental commissioner, Daniel J. O'Hearn, Neither of these men held those positions at the time. Even more curious, the deed was not recorded at the Passaic County Clerk's Office until August of 1979, almost six years later. This land became a part of Ringwood State Park and to this day is regularly used by hikers and hunters. The second sidebar story is the first piece in the series that examines Ford dumping across the state line in New York, under the title, Ringwood is Not the Only Trouble Spot. Barry considers the meadows in Lower Hilburn along the Ramapo River and then takes the reader up into Torn Valley. In this piece, Barry notes that the New York State DEC rejected calls from Rockland County and municipal officials for a cleanup of the sludge. Catherine Quinn of the Rockland Health Department said her agency had been advocating for the state to take action on this issue since 1980. This remained a tussle between county and state agencies as the New York site was not listed under Superfund, so the EPA was not involved. Joe Gowers, an EPA project manager, told Barry, quote, just because you have paint sludge there does not mean the paint sludge is presenting a threat to human health. You have to look at site-specific factors. But Brian Mealy, who was then the mayor of the village of Hilburn, did not agree. Our goal, he said, would be to have anybody who's dumped within the village limits to have it cleaned up properly. In my opinion, there is an inordinate amount of material at the site. He spoke of the midnight dumping. And he said, quote, when I first became mayor in 1977, there were complaints by local residents of trucks going into Torn Valley. There was dumping going on all night long. Jeff Welch, Barry noted, was concerned about people unknowingly exposed to sludge. He talked about fishermen and hikers being exposed to hazardous waste. Welch recalled that residents raised concern about sludge amid weeds near to one of the wells by the river in 1992. The DEC took an action that resulted in contaminated soil piled up into a mound and left there right next to the wellhead. It was that mound of sludge covered in brush and weeds near to the United Water Well that we had photographed with Tom Franklin of the Bergen Record. 
This story brought toxic legacy into New York State and up into the Torn Valley, deep into the watershed, widening the public concern. As for the rest of the narrative, Robert Spiegel of Edison Wetlands, an environmental watchdog group, is quoted as saying that a state law known as the Spill Act, which holds responsible parties liable for remediation of polluted waterways, was violated. Frustrated by the slowness of action on the part of regulators, Spiegel said, quote, EPA has done nothing to restrict the discharge. Ford has not done anything, and the state has not done anything. We are preparing to sue on this. Some regulatory agency has to be accountable. But the added disturbing news was the testimony of Bruce Mulhalt, a former EPA toxicologist who told the EPA 10 months earlier that PCBs, that's polychlorinated biphenyls, highly carcinogenic, and other toxic substances found at the site caused cancer and nerve damage directly. Mohal indicated that, quote, collectively their risks may be more than the sum of their individual risks. In other words, through a toxic synergism. Essentially, this installment of Toxic Legacy indicates that the regulatory agencies seem to be offering more protection to industry and little, if any, to the community. And while the front line of that community may be the turtle clan of the Ramapo Indian Nation, according to Barry, the EPA displayed little concern even over the safety of the nearby reservoir. As Barry noted, quote, in 1998, The record reported that the North Jersey District Water Supply Commission, which runs the Wanakue Reservoir System, had found elevated levels of lead and benzene in an orange-colored seep from a stream near Peter's Mind. In response, EPA project manager Monica Motsky wrote the record that the water district has indicated to EPA that it found no exceedances of any chemicals above standards. But when the EPA ordered more testing to be done in 2004, Louis Schneider, the lab manager for the Water Commission, found that there were high elevated levels of lead and benzene. He concluded that Motsky misstated the earlier results. So a massive reservoir that services millions of citizens in North Jersey continued to be at risk. And like the proverbial miner's canary, the Ramapo people continued to suffer. The next in the series will focus on the Ramapos themselves. You know, it really defies all imagination and anything that resembles integrity or decency or just to see and to witness what happened here. I mean, every time I hear this, you open up another chapter of this story, I'm saying to myself, what in God's name are these people thinking? It keeps coming back again and again and again. How could you act with such utter disregard for the lives of others? How much money did this save Ford Motor Company? Seriously, a multi-billion dollar international company. How much money did this save them? What price did they say that's worth killing many, many people and, and creating disease and misery? That's a good profit. We can do that. That has to be the calculation, right? That has to be the decision here. It's the cost of doing business. It's very cold. Oh my God. So the, the watchmen didn't do their job. They failed. But Jan and his team, 
they did do their job. Now, where has this gone? Is there still a, a follow-up to this? Or I realize we're talking, what, 2005, 2004, 2005, so that's a long time ago. You know. <laughs> uh, okay, I can give you a little, little update on this in terms of where it's gone. Nowhere. In Ringwood, and, and we'll talk about this much later in the series, in Ringwood, the EPA had agreed with Ford to have removal of paint sludge in an area called the O'Connor uh, Waste Field. And they were going to remove it. It was going to be a full removal. Th that was a separate discussion from the one about the sludge in the mine holes. That's, that's a whole other issue. But at least the waste field was about to be removed. And then in an 11th hour decision, uh, Ford offered Ringwood, the borough of Ringwood, a different plan did not communicate this to the members of the turtle clan. And the different plan was that they would cap the materials, removing only the materials outside the perimeter of the cap. And then they would build a state of the art recycling center on top of the cap so that the borough of Ringwood would have a revenue producer. And it's estimated this would cost a few million dollars as opposed to more than that to do the removal. Um, the community wasn't consulted on this, and the EPA gave them a green light. So this has been held up because this is absurd for a whole series of reasons. And one of them actually is it's never been done like this. You've never, there's no place in the country where a cap has been built on top of toxic waste that has access below it to groundwater flow and then an industry placed on top of the cap and I know this industry well. There'd be 200 tractor trailers pulling in and coming out, 200 garbage haulers pulling in and coming out every day during the, the work week. And some even coming during the weekend if they're coming from a far enough location and they can park there and idle overnight while people live right there. Never mind that people live right there. And, so there, and then there's also the machinery that's used in this facility that moves around separating the materials for recycling and all that sort of stuff, you know, the big bucket haulers and so forth. So you're essentially on top of the cap creating vibrations into the soils where the contaminants are, are, are under, underneath the cap, which means you're expediating the potential for access into the groundwater. So instead of removing them, you're finding a way to create a kind of giant malted milk machine on the earth so that you can expedite the further contamination of this material. And while this was being discussed, Ford's engineers came up with another idea. Well, why should we take away the stuff outside the perimeter of the cap? We'll just dig that stuff up and shove it inside the perimeter of the cap God. so that we can compound that material and push it down and put the concrete cap on top of it. That the EPA, Joe, that the EPA would greenlight such insanity illustrates that whatever good might have been found in the EPA, and I know plenty of people, I have friends who worked in the EPA, that whatever good might have been there is gone. It's, it's, it's a complete hollow presentation of its former self. Because this is, it's an invitation to a disaster. 
And, you know, we, we've got the community, we've got the turtle clan, we've got these people, we've got these children on this road walking the, the, the path back and forth to their playground and to their school bus. And now we're going to bring in an additional 200 garbage haulers a day, bringing in trash from all around North Jersey. Now we're going to be doing this to say nothing of the fact that we're stirring up these impacted materials beneath the surface of the ground. And I've seen the studies of the groundwater flow, of the, the, the way in which the slope actually functions and how the groundwater moves. And it's saturated. I, I've been there. I've, you know, it's, it's, it's not like this is theoretical. This will send this material and expedite the movement of this material underground and even percolate it up into the creek so that it'll go to the Wanakue Reservoir. This is, this is nuts. So, yes, where has it gone? It's not to a good place. No, it sounds like in the absence of, of uh, any kind of enforcement or regulation or consequences, it's only gotten worse. And even when trucks run in and out with all this crap on board, there's, there's tons of off-gassing just from that alone. Even yep. before you move the trash under some some concrete cap or whatever else you're, you're, you're going to try to do with it. But, I mean, once again, it, it just seems like, how can we put one over on the people? You know? Yeah, let's give them a, a recycling, you know, processing center. You know, that, uh, that, that'll keep them happy for a few, uh, you know, a few decades maybe until they all of a sudden realize that there's a, a strange... Uh, you know, grouping of cancer patients in this area, and it's well, way too well, late. Well, the, the, the borough, the borough is at fault here. The the borough of Ringwood, because they're accepting, they're happy to get this recycling center. They don't live with with the Turtle Clan. They live elsewhere. And to me, I mean, let's call it for what it is. This is environmental racism. Let let's kill the black man. Let's kill the red man. Let's kill all of those people. They don't matter. That's what the borough is saying. I, I don't see it as anything other than murder. They're killing them. Because we, we talk about cancer clusters. The cancer clusters are there right now. And, and the, the, I, I talked to you earlier about the fact that there used to be great longevity among the Turtle Clan members. It wasn't unusual. The you know, centurions, you know, 100-year-old storytellers and so forth. They're lucky they're lucky if they can reach their 60s anymore. Oh, and that's only been since this whole thing came about. So the borough doesn't care. And, you know, it's, it's local politics. And that's, that's a, a huge problem because Ford saw this. Ford clearly got the message. Hey, wait a minute. Before we move further with this potential cleanup, there's some local politics we can play here. They got a crappy old recycling center that's not making them much revenue. What if they had a state-of-the-art one? And it's literally modeled after the one that's up Torn Valley Road in town of Ramapo, so I know it quite well. Mm. And, and that's, that's, that's what they're offering them. They're, they're buying them out. Yeah. So, you know, the scum suckers in the town Barrow Hall are just worthless to me. And yeah. they're racists because this is what they're doing. And, and honestly, what's behind this whole story when we talk about it is – a kind of, let's call it what it is, kind of colonial racism. There's a, a level of supremacy that the, the dominant factor in society believes it's untouchable. And it's gotten away with so much over the years that it continues to, to pull this kind of stuff. Well, we already know that the average life term in the United States for a white man 
is 76 and some months. And for a black man is 71 and some months. It's a five-year difference. Obviously, that's not happening because of the color of their skin. It's happening right. because of the conditions upon in, in which uh, they must live in this country. And I'm, I'm certain it's probably very similar for the Native Americans. God, it just makes you so angry. You know, it's just so, so incredibly frustrating that this goes on. What, what happened to Ford? I mean, obviously, they're not in Ramsey, uh, that area anymore. What do, what do they do when all of this is happening? Well, Ford's retreated. Uh, they, they still have to check in from time to time because of, you know, the Superfund site that's up in Ringwood. They've retreated from us in Torn Valley because we actually completed that. That actually turns into a success story. But my, my gut feeling about Ford is they're no different than any other automobile industry. They could give a rat's ass about their contamination because that's, again, like we said earlier, the cost of doing business. Now, they do spend money on remediation. They will do this. But you have to get all your ducks in the row. This is what we did on the New York side and, and hasn't been done on the New Jersey side. Yeah. In this particular case, I would suggest that the town of Ramapo, when we were working on this in the early 2000s, was less corrupt than the borough of Ringwood in New Jersey. I wouldn't say that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the town of Ramapo caught up with its level of seedy corruption since those days. But fortunately, we had a, a period of time where there was some leverage with the town of Ramapo that, that really carried right on through into the mid-2000-teens. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's remarkable, Joe. It's remarkable the significant role the local municipal government winds up playing in all of this. Yeah. And that becomes often the weak link. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like that's the weak link. That's the last stop where something effective and good could happen. And yet every time we seem to come there, somebody says, hey, you want to make a deal? And that's the end of it right there. I, I got to wonder, Chris Christie, boy, when I heard his name... <laughs> Oh, man, like a bad penny. He just keeps coming back. But uh, His name shows up again. You'll see. I wonder if he's <laughs> driving a Lincoln Continental. I wonder I wonder what car he drives, you know? Just, <laughs> just wonder. I just wonder. So his name comes up again. Are there any crusaders in government that are, that are fighting for us? Can well, you... I mentioned uh, in, on the New York side, I mentioned Kathy Quinn. She worked with the health department. She went out with me on a number of occasions to do site evaluations of areas where we suspected paint sludge was. And we went with teams of people to verify this based on, you know, anecdotal evidence. So she really put in the groundwork and did the follow up with Tomaselli, who was the director uh, uh, before her. And um, and so she worked for him. And then eventually she was in charge of that field work. And she was great. And she got resistance from government in, in the county, but, but not a lot. And she knew how to deal with it. And then, of course, again, on the New York side, uh, Chris St. Lawrence, who is the controversial town supervisor in the town of Ramapo. And, and he, did, he did remarkably well, I felt, and, and stood up on behalf of the environment and the people. But um, that's, a, that's a separate story. We'll get to that later. Uh, on the New Jersey side, there was a, a former mayor in Ringwood who was no longer, I, her name's slipping my mind, but she was pretty good. Uh, the problem with the New Jersey side is there's, the corruption is insidious. 
And the other problem is, and this is something they don't really want to acknowledge or admit, but the level of racism is also insidious. Because the Ramapos live in the mining area, that's their problem. That's the attitude. Yeah. And, you know, if Ford had never dumped there, it wouldn't be a problem. Because they can live in a mining area and fall in an open pit once in a while and, oh, well, you just lose one or two. That would be the attitude. Mm -hmm. There are power lines strung over top of houses, which is completely inappropriate. But, you know, the, the, the level of impact is going to be minimal. There's definitely electromagnetic wave level of impact, but it would not be the same thing as what Ford brings to the case. Right. So Ford is a bigger, a bigger deal. It exacerbates everything that's going on in Ringwood. I wonder where all of this ends. We live in an age right now where we're starting to question whether our country is capable of justice. I think we all have given up on the idea of no man is above the law. That's, that's an absurdity in the current uh, day and age. Uh, there are there are several uh, classes of men, and I suppose women too, who are clearly above the law. But you just wonder, like, what will it take? Will there ever be a, a true resolution to this, a remedy? And I guess the only thing you can say in the end is, even if there isn't, you can never stop fighting because it can only get worse if we do nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I fall back on Madisonian government. There needs to be a balance, and the government needs to be the people. And and some of the people are whacked out crazy. I get that. But the majority of them aren't. And the majority of the people need to know that when they carp about the government, they're really carping about themselves because they can still gain access to the government. That brings to, to mind the most important thing the people, we the people, can do, and that is exercise our right to vote. Absolutely, no matter how hard certain groups and parties, etc., may try to suppress that vote or to change that vote or to make that vote impossible, we have to break on through to the other side. We've got to get that vote. And as I look at the situation today with litigation against Trump and his cabal and things like that, it becomes clearer and clearer. We're not going to be able to uh, remedy this situation with law. Our, our laws and our systems of uh, law enforcement just simply are not up to this level of corruption. So the only thing that's going to correct this, the only thing that will work in the end is the vote that is cast by we the people. Um, we either take that as seriously as life or death, because that's what it is now, and exercise that vote, or or we lose everything, literally everything. Democracy, freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness all at the same time. I, I, would, I agree, and, and I, would, I would add to that, beware, this would be my, my concern, this is what I would tell my students, beware of people who say that the vote doesn't matter. Beware of people who say that the government is corrupt, there's no point in participating, because they don't want you to vote. Beware of people who advocate the redistricting, for voting districts, because what they're doing is pulling the plug on a participatory republic. So mm -hmm. watch those people. They've got the agenda. They sure do. And redistricting is nothing more than so-called leaders picking their constituents as opposed to constituents voting for their leaders. Yeah. Redistricting, redistricting yeah. or gerrymandering by another name is, is simply just that, making it impossible for 
balanced government for one party to have an, an equal chance, a fair and equal chance with another. And yeah, to your point about, you know, people saying, and even people like me who get depressed sometimes and just say, what's the point? Just remember one thing, no vote or a vote for some dream team candidate, a write-in vote, anything like that is a vote for the other side. You're not making any point. You're not making a statement. You're voting for Donald Trump. Not to vote is a vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. Voting for a write-in is a vote for Donald Trump. That's where we stand right now. The vote is our, our only salvation. And my God, I hope that people get that because we really are on the cliff right now. And in that ominous light... My indigenous friends would add, but we've been on a cliff for a long time, thanks to you folks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, They're so accustomed to survival on the edge. Yeah, we're just learning what it feels like, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, folks, these are difficult subjects and it's hard to hear and hard to think about, but... They're absolutely essential, and we all have to get involved. So we'll see you next week with more Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore, now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales, for their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8th Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. 
themontgomerybookexchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.